in the book of Esther. And we'll be hitting chapter 3 this morning. Uh, you could really say scene 3, because Esther plays much like a, like a good story. Uh, but really, scene 3 introduces the antagonist in the story. Uh, to note, author and theologian by the name of Tremper Longman, I had the opportunity a few years ago to gather with other Seattle-area pastors and hear Tremper teach on the book of Esther uh, for a powwow day, started at 9 in the morning, ended about 4 in the afternoon. And one of the things he reminded the, the, the group before we started the teaching time is, is he said this, and I wrote it down because it really stuck with me, but he said this, quote, reading the Old Testament as a Christian is like watching a good, exciting movie for the second time. You have a different perspective knowing the outcome and purpose. Though Esther is an account of the temporary salvation of God's people, similar to the account of the Exodus, many of the stories in Judges, and even throughout the book of Kings and Chronicles, the saving work of God for Israel was temporal. It was not eternal. Whether by outside force or internal decay, Israel, Israel continually needed salvation by divine intervention. If you go through the Old Testament, eight times Israel goes through this cycle of God having divinely saved them, them walking away in disobedience, God bringing uh, uh, judgment upon them for their disobedience and God divinely saving them. Eight times they needed his saving act in the Old Testament. Uh, and, and it shows us just the waywardness of the human heart. These accounts of God's saving work, and this is good for us to remember, they are but a shadow meant to direct our attention, knowing the whole story of redemption, forward in that story of redemption to the eternal and lasting divine work of salvation in Christ. The Bible declares that all scripture points to Jesus, and Esther certainly is no exception Though not explicitly stated, God's sovereign working, God is sovereignly working in the background, and it's evident throughout the narrative of Esther. And it's important for us today to recognize that God is at work in the world he has created, even when we do not see him clearly. He is working. Just as he was at work for the people of Israel at the time of Esther, so is he working in our world and our lives today. It's easy for us to look at the world around us and see evil. And we may be tempted to question whether God cares or is present at all. Esther assures us he does and he is. He does care and he is present, even if we do not see them, see him working. In our text today, we are introduced to one more character in the story. Now, as I said, Esther is a brilliant story. It has all the elements of a great story. An unexpected heroine in Esther, the righteous protagonist in Mordecai, the ridiculously rich, kind of gullible benefactor in Hazarus, who is the king of Persia. Additionally, this story is set in a vast, rich, powerful empire that rules over the whole known world at that time. And in this vast and powerful empire, there are many villains, but none quite as devious as Haman. And if there were to be a soundtrack to, uh, to Esther chapter 3, it'd sound a little like this. Dun, 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 dun. Right, the villain. You know that music because in walks in the most iconic villain, except for Haman and others. 
uh, on screen, right? Uh, Esther chapter 3 is the introduction of the villain in the story. But one thing that I want us to keep in mind as we study Exodus chapter 3 is that though there has, has been and will be those who oppose God's design and persecute God's people, additionally, though it may appear on the surface that evil has prevailed, we must remember this is merely a scene. It's not the whole story. God will fulfill every promise he has made. His word will not return void or empty. All right, so if you have your Bibles, we're going to read through all of Esther chapter 3, and then I have some, some thoughts on it. Read with me, Esther chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, for the people, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the, prophet, to the king's prophet to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents, which is approximately 75,000 pounds of silver. That's how much he was willing to pay. All right, picking back up. I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who will have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Continuing in verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the, in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all, peop all the peoples to be ready for that day. 
The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. All right, so we are introduced to Haman, the Agagite, in this chapter, uh, later described as the enemy of the Jews. But we first must ask the question, who is Haman? Why would the writer of Esther need to tell us, not once, but twice, his people and his family? Why is that important? Well, this story runs deeper than just the surface. It's deeper than just one man. Haman the Agagite was a descendant of the Amalekite kings. The people descended from Amalek. And and we're going to do... Sorry if you're not a history nerd. I like history, and I I really, really like biblical history. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to peel back a few layers of the onion. If your eyes water, it's okay. Just just wipe them out. Um, And we're going to look about why this issue between Israel and Analek, why it existed. Because this is is something that the the Hebrew readers of this story, they would have picked up on. Oh, Haman, the, the aggregate. Oh, Agagite, not aggregate, that's concrete. Agagite. They would have picked up on this. These these were people descended from Amalek, uh, and they were historic enemies of Israel. Now, we're talking about a feud far, far greater than the Hatfield and the McCoys. Like, this is a feud that runs deep, very deep, and we're just going to briefly look how deep this runs. You can see... A conflict between Israel and Amalek, the Amalekites, in 1 Samuel 15. We'll look at that. You can see it, uh, them called out in Deuteronomy 25. Moses calls them out. We see it in Exodus 17, but it's even earlier than that. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 28 through 33, you'll see where this conflict between the Amalekites and the Israelites began. Genesis chapter 8 to 33 is really the the history of the people of Israel. The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom God later changed Jacob's name to Israel. Jacob, one of two sons of Isaac and Rebekah, had a twin brother. And Jacob, whose name was Israel, had a twin brother named Esau. Esau whose later, later his name was changed to, changed to Edom, had a grandson. His grandson's name was Amalek. Now, if you spend some time in Genesis 28 through 33, and even chapter 38, it gives a list, a genealogy, of the descendants of Esau. And you'll see that, that, that from the very beginning, actually, it accounts in Genesis chapter 25 that that when Rebecca was pregnant, she said, it feels like there's fighting going on in my womb. And God tells her that there are two nations, two peoples in your, in your womb, and those two nations will be divided. Malachi, which is an Old Testament minor prophet, Malachi chapter 1, sheds a little bit of light on this division between these two people groups. And he says that one, Israel, Jacob's descendants, was chosen by God, the other rejected If you study Jacob's life and Esau's life, you see a pattern set with these two men. One was a pattern of obedience, not perfect obedience. If you study Jacob's life, he did not obey God perfectly, but his heart was to obey the Lord. Jacob obeyed God's commands given through Isaac, 
And it's clear that Esau disdained those commands, rejected his birthright, rejected the covenant that, that, Jacob, or that, that uh, Isaac and Abraham had with God. He utterly rejected that, utterly disobeyed it, and lived entirely how he wanted to. In fact, actually, in Genesis chapter 28, it says that, that Esau saw that, that, that Isaac had commanded that they marry within their tribe. And so he goes out and marries wives, plural, from the Canaanite women, just to spite, just to be disobedient to what his parents and ultimately what God had asked of the descendants of Abraham and Isaac to do. So we see this pattern in Esau of disobedience and a pattern of Jacob of obedience. And that's in, in the origins, those two brothers, and there was conflict between them. But their descendants continued in that pattern of disobedience and that pattern of obedience, albeit not perfect through Israel's line, but a desire to obey the Lord. We see Exodus chapter 17. We see the descendants of Esau's grandson, the Amalekites, attacked Israel as they came through the desert. So let me give a little bit of context to this. Israel was enslaved in Egypt. God did this massive uh, divine intervention and saved them from slavery delivering them out of Egypt, calling them and establishing them as a nation within the land that he had told generations before that that would be their land that he had given to Abraham. As they wandered through the desert and they were entering or heading toward the promised land, the land that God had given them, the Amalekites attacked them. The Amalekites, their relatives, right, Jacob and Esau, their relatives attacked them, but they didn't attack them head on. They attacked all of the weak and struggling at the end of the line and slaughtered them. And so what we see is, is a pattern of disdain, of, 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 of disobedience, of, of disregard to human life. And so conflict happens in Exodus 17. <clears throat> Exodus 17 gives us an account. Uh, by the way, Exodus 17 is hands down my favorite chapter in the Old Testament. The first part, not necessarily this part with Amalek, with the Amalekites. The first part. So they're coming out of the, the, the desert, and God provides water from a rock. It's a beautiful scene of salvation, foreshadowing what Christ would do. And then they move into being attacked by their, their lifelong foes as a nation, the Amalekites. And so Moses <clears throat> commands Joshua, picking up in Exodus 17, verses, verse 8. It says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men to go out and fight with Amalek. And so I'm going to paraphrase what happens next. Moses, Hur, and, and Aaron go up upon the hill. And Moses is holding God's staff upright. Up on the hill, three people up on the hill, staff, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious what that looked like. But as Moses raised his hands and the staff was, was lifted up, the Israelite would defeat the Amalekites. When Moses' arms began to fail, fall down, uh, Amalek would, would win. The Amalekites would, would start to defeat Israel. So they propped up Moses and they won the victory <clears throat> there at that moment. And so at the end, after that victory... Uh, Moses says this. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, 
that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So again, God is showing this pattern of disobedience he is opposed to very strongly. Very strongly showing that this path of disobedience God is strongly opposed to. And, and goes as far as to say that those who continue to walk in utter disobedience to God's way, he will oppose them directly. Deuteronomy 25, Moses recounts this, this account, verses 13 through 19, where he writes this to the people of Israel. He says, you shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that, that your days may be long in the land that the, the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. Remember that what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were legging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that, that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. We don't like to talk about these types of texts because we don't like the, the here and now implications of them. But what we need to see and what's strong in the book of Esther is that God is revealing a heart attitude a disposition of disobedience, a disposition of utter, utterly rejecting God's design. And God is showing that he is opposed to that way of living. We see in 1 Samuel 15 another account of these interactions between the Amalekites. We see that Israel did not obey the Lord and did not reject those who were disobeying God who were opposed to God's way. And so in 1 Samuel 15, we see this fight between the Israelites and the Amalekites. It continues on. Saul is king at this time. He's the first king over the nation of Israel at this time. He is a Benjaminite. This comes into the story. And he's commanded to, to bring justice the descendants of Amalek. Saul disobeyed the word of the Lord. This is where we, we often, we have a coffee mug verse that comes out of, out of this text, to obey is better than sacrifice. Because Paul, uh, Saul was, was disregarding what God had told him to do, and Samuel had to correct him. Saul ultimately lost his role as king because he did not obey the word of the Lord. We see a strong tie between obedience and disobedience. In this text, but we see also that, that from this king, the title that's used is the Agag. That's a title for king, much like uh, the Sultan is a title for the ruler uh, in Arab nations. But the Agag is the king, and he was, he was brought, uh, as well as other, other spoils and other things from the, 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 the defeat of the Amalekites, they were allowed to, to continue on. And what was being established here was. Those who are called to be in obedience to God were to utterly reject all that is opposed to God's way. If you're tempted to think that this has more to do with bloodlines than obedience, you might say, well, what does God have against Esau? Like, man, and his people, like, why, 
Why such harsh reaction to him? It's not about bloodlines at all. It's not about the people. It's about a disposition of disobedience, an utter rejection of who God is and the way he is. And that, that it's, it is demonstrating for us in, on this side of the story of redemption to see that there are two paths, a path of obedience and a path of disobedience, a path to life and a path to death. All throughout the Old Testament, we see this. And I'll, I'll speak more to this in a minute. But I would have you consider, if you think it just has something to do with race or people, Psalm 106, 34 through 39 The psalmist brings a charge to Israel and says, They, Israel, did not destroy the peoples, that is the Amalekites, as the Lord commanded them. But they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts. And played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. The Amalekites through the Old Testament seem to be a prototype of sorts for those who utterly oppose, that are utterly opposed to God and His way, that act impulsively, deceitfully, and maliciously. But ultimately, their desire is to disregard and disobey what God has said, and even who God is. And therefore, persecute God's people. Now, as I said, we see in the Old Testament two paths laid out. We see this throughout the Old and New Testaments. We see a path of life and a path of destruction. In numerous places throughout Scripture, there is painted for us these two paths. One of life through obedience, the other of destruction through disobedience. In the Old Testament... Briefly, it looks like this. The path of life is obeying God's standard. It was grafting to the people of Israel, obeying the law of Moses. And it was a shadow. The law was just a shadow of something greater to come because they failed at that part again and again and again. And God had to divinely act on their behalf again and again and again. But we see this path to life. That is, that is closely associated to obedience. And then we see this path of destruction that is closely associated to disobedience, a rejection of God's design. <laughs> now, it has absolutely nothing to do with bloodlines or ethnicity. And Scripture gives us some examples of those. Consider Rahab, the Canaanite from Jericho, who rejected the ways of her people and embraced and followed the ways of God. She's actually part of the bloodline of Christ. Consider Caleb, who went to to, uh, conquer the the, uh, promised land with Joshua. One of two people that made it from the Exodus into the promised land. Joshua, Joshua and Caleb. Caleb was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. So it has nothing to do with bloodlines. It has everything to do with their utter rejection and disobedience to the way of God, to who God is. In the New Testament, we see the fulfillment of of these shadows given in the Old Testament. We see a path to life displayed in the New Testament. Those who respond to the gospel 
with faith in Christ. And by the way, obedience is attached to it, but it's just not our obedience. It's Christ's obedience that really matters because he's the only one that could truly obey perfectly. And that's what the Old Testament is explaining over and over and over again. Those, <clears throat> excuse me, those who are on the path of righteousness, on the path of life, continue to disobey. The law exposes their need for salvation. But New Testament, the New Testament says there is a path to life, and it is one that is without traps, that is without our ability to mess it up because God has divinely intervened in Christ. And so we see those on the path to life who respond to the gospel with faith in Christ, Christ who lived that perfect, obedient life, who obeyed the law, God's standard perfectly, and then, as Scripture tells us, imputes his righteousness, which means almost like he takes his righteous clothes off and he puts it on, on us. It's not something we have earned nor deserve. It is a gift of grace. But it sets us on the path of life. It is an act of God's grace alone, not man's volition. But we also see in the New Testament the same path of destruction that's threaded throughout the Old Testament as well. It's those who continue in disobedience toward the Lord. Rejection of God's design. Who reject eternal salvation through Christ and continue in their sin and rebellion. This is a consistent theme through Scripture. Which is important for us to pause and ask the question, what path am I on? And is my life, not just my words, because anybody can say anything they want to, but is my life aligned with the standards of God as given through Scripture? Have I aligned myself and said, yes, I cannot do this on my own, but God, through Christ, has done all that is required. And to the cross, I cling. The good news, the gospel is that we all begin on the path of destruction. But as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, but God, being rich in mercy, provided a way of salvation for all who would believe in Jesus, calling all to repent of our disobedience and rebellion against God and to turn to Christ in faith and trust in Jesus and his righteousness for salvation, which is a gift of grace. And if you have not responded to the gospel this morning, I don't care if you've come to church since you were that tall. Church does not save you. Christ does. If you have not responded to the gospel message with faith and repentance, belief in Christ, I would urge you today, do not delay. Respond to Jesus. He has done all that needs to be done to take us from the path of destruction that leads to death. He's provided a way on the path to, to life, eternal life. Scripture tells us that we are to trust in him. This was, this was to demonstrate the grace of God by choosing to save some, not on the basis of, of human merit, but on the basis of God's mercy. Paul makes this connection, these two paths. He makes this connection of those in disobedience 
He makes this ultimate connection in Romans chapter 9, where he deals with the issue of ethnicity. And he says, it's not about being an Israelite, ethnically an Israelite, but it's about those who are in Christ, those who are perfect in obedience because Christ was perfect in obedience. And he offers that to us. Romans 9 and 10, I would encourage you to spend some time there. Paul unpacks what what was happening in the Old Testament and why that matters to us today when we read these Old Testament texts. Because ultimately it comes down to how are we to respond to Christ. We respond to God by trusting in his way of salvation and by obeying what he has laid down for us. And this doesn't even remotely begin to describe Haman. He's on the other path, utterly disobeying, exalting himself. In fact, even the language that's used in chapter 3 as far as lifting his throne above, this is is language used for deity during that time. Haman viewed himself as a god among men. And he became absolutely furious when one man would not bow down to him. So we see in our text, this is Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. He has advanced high above all the other officials. But there's one who does not give him the traditional honor and respect, does not revere him as he ought to, and that is in our protagonist, Mordecai. Mordecai acts righteously. He does not bow. Now, apparently we're missing some context to to the resistance as to why Mordecai uh, would would choose not to honor Haman in this way. We're also missing some of the details as to the discussion of the king's servants by the king's gate that had this, that, that, that kind of pulled all of this together and eventually trying to convince Mordecai to play the part, and then only to turn on him and go tattle to Haman and, 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 and kind of build this whole scenario up. But Haman's hatred, the, the writer lets us know that Haman's hatred was not isolated to Mordecai alone. No. He hated all of those who were obedient to God's design. Now, likely he knew his heritage. Likely he knew the tension that existed between Israel and Amalek. But his hatred spilled over towards any who would associate themselves with the God of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so what we see is he, he begins in this hatred in his heart, he, he hatches a plot to utterly destroy all those who are attempting to be obedient to God's way. And so we see the great deception in verses 7 through 11. Haman begins by casting Pur. This, uh, the Jews have a festival called Purim that is commemorating, remembering this. Essentially what this, this detail is showing us is that Haman was incredibly superstitious. Uh, he was uh, using the magical practices of that time. Uh, they were rolling dice 
And it was a, a superstitious, magical practice, a heathen, pagan practice of trying to determine when the best time would be for something to happen. And so the writer of, of Esther tells us that they kept rolling the dice day after day. Nope, not that day, not that day. And month after month until they landed on 12 months in advance in the month of Adar, which is the end of the final month of the Jewish calendar. And so Haman, the dice land favorably on that day. And so Haman says, this is the day he goes and deceives the very gullible but very rich Ahasuerus. Uh, and, and he begins so by giving a true statement, giving a partially true statement, and then leading to a flat-out lie. One, one uh, scholar said of this, of Haman's, uh, Haman's plot and his communication to the king, uh, by the name of Mervyn Brenneman, said uh, this of, of Haman. He said, quote, Haman's accusation of the Jews in verse 8 was diabolically clever in its construction. Proceeding as it did from the truth, there's a people dispersed and scattered, to a half-truth, their customs are different, well, that's kind of true, to an outright lie. They do not obey the king's laws. He built up his case. The king fell for it. Hazarus fell for it. Gives Haman utter power, utter control. The only person that was higher than Haman as he gave him his signet ring was King Ahasuerus himself. Haman sweetens the deal with 75,000 pounds of silver, Probably wasn't, you know, a small thing even then. And Ahasuerus says, do as you will. And so the story goes on. The king's scribes were summoned in verse 12. The king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. Now, why is this important? Why, why tell us the day in the month that the edict went out that the that all of the Jews were to be destroyed. There's some irony in this story because that was the day before Passover. You remember that yearly festival that Israel celebrated God's deliverance from the nation of Egypt, his miraculous deliverance of a people enslaved, establishing them as a people. They were not a people before then. They are a people afterward. The day before, and even as some Jews were likely preparing for Passover week, the day before this edict comes out, the Jews are to be destroyed. But what the pawn doesn't know is the true king of kings is working salvation for those who are called by his name and condemnation for those who continue in their rejection and rebellion against God. Make no mistake. This is still how God will act toward those who continue in sin. And while it may appear for a time that evil has the last laugh as they sit down to drink amidst the confusion of the city, right? That's how our scene closes in Esther chapter 3. I remind you, this is merely the close of a scene, not the end of the story. Not just here in Esther, but the story of redemption continues on. Because the salvation brought to the people of Esther, or the people during Esther's time of Israel, it was 
They needed saving again and again and again until Christ. But it's good for us to remember that there are those like Haman and the Amalekites who will not move from the path of destruction. Blinded by their own sinful delusions, they hate God and his people. But there are others whom God has chosen, saved, and is redeeming for his glory. I think of Saul, who later was named Paul, who as in his zeal was murdering Christ followers, thinking all the time that he was doing the will of God. If anyone appeared to be fully invested in the path of destruction, it would have been Saul. But God divinely intervened in his life, radically saved him. And we have half of the New Testament as a result of God's work in Paul's life, Saul who became Paul. There is no one beyond the reach of God. There is no one who is too far down the path of destruction until the day they breathe their last. There is no one beyond the reach of God. That ought to give us a sense of urgency for our mission here and now. Because God has chosen to use the church as a city on the hill or a light in the darkness to say there is a path to life and it is only through the work and person of Jesus Christ. That is our mission. There are times when the enemies of God's people appear powerful and times when God's people are slandered openly to others. As I said before, and I'll say again, there has been and will be those who oppose God's design and persecute God's people. And though it may appear for a time on the surface that evil has prevailed, it is good for us to remember this is merely a scene, not the whole story. God will fulfill every promise. And the promise we Church, if you are a professing follower of Jesus today, the promise we are holding on to is that he said he will come back for us. He has given us a purpose and a mission. That is to declare his goodness. And we can hold fast that God will fulfill every promise and that his word will not return void. Amen? Let's pray. God, this morning, God, we ask that you would, would open our eyes to see the world around us as you see it. God, it's easy for us to focus on really temporary things and to miss eternal things. It's, it's easy for us to get caught up on, on things that impact us here and now, but have very little impact on eternity. God, I pray that you would help us to be bold in our declaration of who you are and what you've done. I pray that you would help us to continue in Christ's obedience and out of love for Christ that we would love your church and love your word and seek to be shaped and formed by your word. I pray, God, that we would declare the good news of the gospel to those who don't think they need it 
Don't think it's relevant or utterly reject it altogether and oppose it. God, I pray that you would help us to be bold in our witness to declare your goodness to the world around us. I pray, God, that we would set our eyes upon things to come and we would set our attention upon the mission that you've given us to declare your goodness regardless of the opposition to the glory of your great name. Amen.